Galveston and share this kingdom with thy dearest friend. Hello and welcome to Ear Read This. My name's Ash and today we're going to be looking at Edward II. I'm very excited about this one because it's our first history play. Uh, for a while now I've been wanting to um, get into Shakespeare's tetralogy of Plantagenet kings, but I thought we'd first look at a couple of earlier members of the family uh, just to set the scene. Before we get started, I just want to say a quick thank you to everyone who supported the podcast. In particular, I wanted to mention some patrons, Mary Kay, Ellen, Amanda, Ol, my brother, and my mum, Lucy. Those last two don't actually know their patrons yet, but um, I want to thank them for leaving their wallets out. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to support the podcast, check out patreon.com slash this, where you can sign up to be a patron uh, and you'll receive at least one secret exclusive bonus episode a month. There's a bunch of stuff there on there already for you to listen to. Uh, some extra Adam versus the Lizard King, an episode on historical literary frauds, uh, a Bad Sex Awards special, episodes on Robert Louis Stevenson's short stories, and I've just uploaded one on the second Philip Marlowe novel by Raymond Chandler. Uh, but today we're talking about the work of another Marlowe, the author of Edward II. Christopher Marlowe was an Elizabethan playwright whose reputation remains clouded by a fog of scandal and mystery. A precocious poet, he uh, may have written his first plays before he even left Cambridge. If any of the rumours about him are true, he would have been a dangerous man to know, being allegedly a homosexual, an atheist and a spy. Three professions that could individually abbreviate your lifespan in Tudor England. And sure enough, Marlowe met his end in a strange and violent reckoning at the age of just 29. Perhaps due to the gaps in his lurid, popular image, Marlowe's plays have often attracted narrowly biographical readings. It is a familiar assumption in Marlowe criticism that in his hit play Tamburlaine, his conquering hero mirrors the brilliant young writer's vaunting ambition. His Dr Faustus furnishes us with evidence of the writer's atheism, and in his Jew of Malta, the extravagant overreaching of Barabbas matches the recklessness of his frequently imprisoned and intellectually provocative author. In Edward II, the story of a king deposed by his bishops and barons for amorously indulging his male favourite, it is said that we discover two important biographical aspects of Marlowe. In King Edward and his adored Gaveston, we see a frank depiction of homosexuality, and in the denuding of the king, Marlowe's disrespect for the crown. This is the political revolutionary side of Marlowe, which was developed during his time as an international spy. And while with such a fascinating figure it may be tempting to seek a, a silhouette biography in his plays, such a reading is flawed. Not only for the disservice it does to his craft as a writer, but also because there are many traditionally accepted aspects of Marlowe that have their source in precisely that kind of reading between the lines. The two proofs most commonly given for his homosexuality, for instance, are first his uh, quoted opinion that all they that love not tobacco and boys are fools, and the apparently gay material found in his plays. This is how the uncritical tradition of reading Marlowe strengthens itself. The plays are gay, therefore the author's gay. And if the author's gay, that makes the plays gayer. While it is perfectly plausible and even downright likely that Marlowe was both a homosexual and an atheist, Lisa Hopkins reminds us that there are, of course, more intelligent reasons for thinking that Marlowe could not have been either of these things. In the shape of modern critical arguments, neither identity was fully available in the 16th century, with atheism as we now understand it intellectually inconceivable, and homosexuality defined not as a separate and exclusive preference, but as on a continuum of a range of behaviour patterns. As for his writing legacy, Marlowe is remembered as the idol and rival of Shakespeare, 
the poet, translator of Ovid, and on stage the popularizer of the mighty line. This was a new kind of muscular blank verse with a romping pentameter. The grandstanding speeches of Tamburlaine enthralled theatregoers enough to warrant the production of a sequel. Though not everyone enjoyed this bombastic new drama, Marlowe's fellow playwright Thomas Nash sniffed at the specious volubility of the drumming decasyllabon. Swagger and unbridled ambition were hallmarks of the Marlovian hero. Often they seemed too powerful to be contained. And one of the reasons Edward II has been described as Marlowe's most mature work is due to the dialed-down bombast and the comparatively smaller stature of its title character. But before we get to the play itself, let's get the measure of the real Edward II. What happened to the first one? The first one is the Edward who got involved with um, William of Wallace. He's the William he's of Wallace. William, did I say William of Wallace? <laughs> William of Wallace. I mean William uh, Wallace. Sorry. With, uh, did you not do that on purpose? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Edward I fought William Wallace, not William of Wallace. His his yeah his his, his Wikipedia says that. He was criticised for his brutal conduct towards the Welsh and the Scots mm-hmm. and also expelled all of the Jews from England. Yeah, they're a nice bunch, the Plantagenets. Edward I had at least 17 children, the majority of whom died young. This left his fourth son, Edward, born in 1284, heir to the throne. Upon his birth, prophets foretold he would be King Arthur incarnate and lead England to untold happy fortune, a spectacularly shoddy bit of divination, as it would turn out. In 1301, the young heir became the first to be dubbed Prince of Wales, although he seems to have thought very little of his province. Writing to his cousin, he would send him some misshapen Welsh greyhounds, which can catch a hare well if they find it asleep. His father, Edward I, or Edward Longshanks, had fought in the Crusades, and his victories closer to home would see him nicknamed, in later centuries, Hammer of the Scots. Longshanks was keen to encourage some military feeling in the prince. He had been impressed by the deportment and skill of a son of one of his knights, and placed the young man in the prince's household. This seemingly trivial action would prove catastrophic, as Piers Gaveston and Prince Edward's subsequent relationship would eventually bring the state of England to the brink of collapse. So why, why do we care about the second one? So he's an interesting um, character. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about him first before we get into the play. He ruled in the early 14th century. Okay. You, his highlights, if you like, was he, um, he was defeated at Bannockburn. <laughs> his best, his his, best Yeah, his highlight reel. He was defeated at Bannockburn by... Um, Robert the Bruce, hey. carrying on the um, Scottish antagonistic thread between these th- these three Eds. And he was um, not a very traditional king, to put it lightly. He, uh, he <clears throat> had a couple of chosen favourites, which were not approved of by the court at large, notably mm-hmm. um, a man called Piers Gaveston, who is... Uh, Piers Gaveston? Gaveston. Was he, was he a bit irritable? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah he was popularly thought popularly thought to be homosexual Uh, he was married to Isabella of France but um, she Mm -hmm. was increasingly alienated by his uh, frolicking with his Gaveston Mm -hmm. Um, and basically the country decided to kind of um, get rid of him he was deposed and he um, either died rather mysteriously or disappeared. Interesting. Uh, Christopher Marlowe's play offers a very uh, gruesome death for him, which we'll get to. One of the most infamous in, in these sort of history plays. <laughs> Edward II 
Edward had been an unconventional prince, preferring music, poetry and the company of harlots to jousting and hunting. His excessive favouritism shown to Gaveston irritated Edward I, who exiled Gaveston in 1307. When the prince begged his favourite's cause, the incensed king ripped out clumps of his son's hair and booted him from his chambers. Gaveston left England in a shower of gifts and riches from the prince. But only a few months later, Edward I fell mortally ill in the midst of a campaign near the Scottish border. Surrounded by his followers, he instructed them to keep Gaveston in exile at all costs. His dying wishes were quickly ignored. One of Edward II's very first acts as monarch was to recall Gaveston, and for good measure, make him the Earl of Cornwall. Gaveston's arrival in England following the old king's death is what opens Marlowe's play. The returning exile enters alone, reading a letter from Edward. My father is deceased. Come, Gaveston, and share the kingdom with thy dearest friend. According to Peter Ackroyd, the coronation of 1307 did not go quite according to plan. The crown was carried, much to the scandal of the great lords, by a close companion of the king with the name of Piers or Peter Gaveston. The number of the people at the ceremony was so large that a plaster wall collapsed, bringing down the high altar and the royal scaffolding. One knight was killed and the remaining ceremonial business was conducted with haste. When Edward II crossed the channel to secure his marriage to the 12-year-old Isabella of France, he left Gaveston keeper of the realm. At the couple's wedding, Gaveston outraged the congregation by threatening to upstage both bride and groom. He dressed in a flamboyant costume of imperial purple and pearls and replaced the conventional display of Isabella's coat of arms with tapestries bearing his own. After Edward's coronation, it took only two months for his lords to demand his ostentatious favourite was once more banished. The King's compromise was to make Gaveston Lieutenant of Ireland, which is depicted at the end of Act One of Marlowe's play. Historically, as John Julius Norwich tells us, historically, as John Julius Norwich tells us, little more than a year later, the odious young man was back at his side, insufferable as ever. In the play, Gaveston's return from Ireland is not due to another breach of exile, but actually at the request of his enemies, who have decided that it may be more advantageous to keep Gaveston within stabbing distance. In reality, it was Edward himself who secured his favourite's second homecoming, and the king is said to have started planning Gaveston's return before the favourite even left for Ireland. Eventually, with support from the Pope, Gaveston was allowed back, and the pair were once again reunited. Predictably, however, it wasn't to last. Gaveston adamantly refused to change his ways and revelled in both insulting his fellow earls and flaunting his preferential treatment from the king by acquiring gifts and favours for his friends. The king didn't help matters, as Norwich says, had he shown the faintest degree of moderation, had he treated the great barons of the land with even a suggestion of deference and respect, they would have probably accepted the situation philosophically. Instead, he rode roughshod over them all, infuriating them with his greed, ostentation and arrogance. In 1311, the king's favourite was once again forcibly kicked out of England, and once again he was back within months. This was one insult too many for the lords, and after being cornered in Scarborough, Gaveston was captured and beheaded. King Edward was left to grieve alone, and complained bitterly, There is no one who is sorry for me. No one fights for my rights against the barons. It is somewhat surprising that his deposition didn't occur shortly afterwards, as it does in Marlowe's play. Instead, Edward remained on the throne for another 15 years, but for king and country they were troublesome years which were spent under attack from all quarters. Led by Robert the Bruce, the Scottish were running rampant and making their invasive neighbours look like fools. At the Battle of Bannockburn, the English were humiliated by the greatly outnumbered Scots, for whom the battle would prove critical in ensuring their national independence. 
Edward, now habitually drunk and never a shadow of his militaristic father, was forced to flee for his life to Dunbar Castle. Peter Ackroyd says that in the medieval period there is some strange alchemy between the state of the nation and the state of the monarch. A year after the disaster of Bannockburn, England was subjected to what is known as the Great Famine, a series of failed harvests caused by an unusually heavy rain. As the population starved, instances of violent crime and disease rose, and there were even rumours of cannibalism. The Great Famine affected the king himself. History records him sometime in the August of 1315, struggling to secure bread for him and his entourage. And speaking of his entourage, Edward found himself a new favourite in the form of Hugh Dispenser. Dispenser was the son of the Earl of Winchester and was made Royal Chamberlain in 1318. He was predictably unpopular among the lords and barons, who were swallowing bile at the thought of a Gaveston reflux. Dispenser made himself notorious as a land thief and had incurred dishonour by murdering a hostage. His impressive back catalogue of bastardry even included a brief stint as a pirate in the English Channel. He was hated enough for his enemies to hire a magician called John of Nottingham to murder him. Nottingham's assassination attempt comprised of driving lead pins into a wax effigy of the royal chamberlain, a method he had tested on an assistant and successfully ended his life. This time, however, it didn't work, and Dispenser became a last straw for Queen Isabella. She petitioned the English barons to exile him, which they were all too happy to do, sending Dispenser packing in 1321. This time round, the king had enough support to fight back and attack the barons, settle old scores, and yet again reinstate an exiled favourite. The civil war that followed became known as the Dispenser War, which ended in victory for Edward and his allies. It was a triumph sweetened by the capture and execution of his cousin, Thomas of Lancaster, the man responsible for the death of Gaveston years before. Peter Ackroyd writes that this was the first time that a sentence of death on the charge of treason had ever been directed at a member of the royal family. What followed was a series of recriminations and a nationwide revenge campaign conducted by Edward and his royal favourite. Isabella fell out of favour, her English lands were confiscated, and she ended up returning to France. There she met Roger Mortimer, a refugee from the Dispenser War who had supposedly escaped the Tower of London after his arrest. They became lovers, raised an army, and sailed to England. In a surprise invasion, they seized power and captured the royal favourite. Correctly fearing the worst, Hugh Dispenser made a desperate attempt to starve himself, but Isabella and Roger Mortimer had a much more agonising retribution in mind. Crowned with a ring of nettles, Dispenser had biblical passages carved into his skin, after which he was hanged. Before he suffocated, he was cut down and while still breathing had his entrails hacked out and burnt. His heart was thrown on a fire and his severed penis was incinerated for the sin of sodomy. Finally, he was beheaded. They really, really hated him. Dispenser was accused of being a sodomite by the Bishop of Winchester, but as we'll see, the term may have had a more flexible meaning than just denoting sexual practice. However, there is evidence to suggest that Edward and Dispenser were considered lovers, as they are referred to in Abbey archives from 1326 as the king and his husband. And as for the king himself, he too was captured and finally deposed. Later, he was imprisoned in Barclay Castle, where he supposedly suffered a horrific fate of his own. In the words of Ranulf Higdon, he was slain with a hot brooch put through the secret place posterior. Edward's fate has been much debated, but Marlowe follows the example of not only Higdon, but his main source, Hollinshed, and depicts the king's murderer thrusting a hot poker up the royal backside. His death left his young son, Edward III, in the words of John Julius Norwich, a little over 14 years old, when he found himself the richest and most powerful ruler in Europe. Edward II is Ed Richard II's great-grandfather. Okay. Because there's a fuck-up when we come to 
the the line of succession. It's all very neat and tidy. Edward the first son is uh, Edward the second. Yep. Edward the second, who we're talking about now, son is Edward the third. Edward the third son is the Black Prince, also called Edward. He is lined up for the throne, but then he shits himself to death, uh, <laughs> dies of dysentery, and everything's screwed up. And instead of the throne going to another of his sons, yep. which, um, like John of Gaunt, it goes to his grandson, Richard II. Interesting. So that, that's the, the sort of run-up to Shakespeare's um, hollow crown plays, as they're kind of popularly referred to after that series. Okay. Um yeah, so that's that's kind of the the history side of things. Um, the the play itself um, was published about five weeks after Marlowe was killed. Oh, um, I'm not sure if you know much about Marlowe's death, but he I know Marlowe died in a fist fight. Yeah, well, fist fight. Maybe a knife was involved. Um, there's some okay. Some records have him being fairly gruesomely stabbed through the eye. Interesting. Uh, the incident is referred to in. As you like it, or there's a little reference to it as a uh, great reckoning in a little room, um, because Marlowe was supposedly arguing about the bill in the place he was staying, which was mm-hmm. referred to as the reckoning. So he's been dead for over a month, okay. and that's when Edward II is first published. We don't know exactly when it was performed. So it was supposedly written a few years before. Uh, Marlowe has a pretty short life, and um, as always, this this sort of when we don't have a direct record, it involves a bit of guesswork and, and sort of topical allusions or or similar phrases to other plays that are around uh, the same time. So it's a very inexact science. But it's thought to have been written about ni- 1591 or two, mm-hmm. and then it's published the, the following year, 1593. The type of English history play that became popular in the Elizabethan era was in its infancy. Marlowe's Edward II and Shakespeare's Henry VI were among the first of their kind. According to E.M.W. Tilliard, Shakespeare's histories belong to the class of English chronicle plays, and that class was practical and not very thoughtful, but was enjoyed by the populace. It exploited the conscious patriotism of the decade after the Armada and instructed an inquisitive public in some of the facts and legends of English history. This appetite for history had been spurred on by a second edition of Holinshed's Chronicles, a key source for both Shakespeare and Marlowe. In the 1580s, the demand for patriotic English history plays began to develop. The English Chronicle play bore a structural similarity and a similar dry didactism to the morality plays of the medieval period. But while the earlier genre had preached a Catholic way of life, in Protestant Tudor England, this had been replaced with nationalism. Thomas Hayward, a playwright working in the Elizabethan and Jacobean period, wrote that these plays are writ with this aim and carried with this method, to teach their subjects obedience to their king, to show the people the untimely ends of such as have moved tumults, commotions and insurrections, to present them with a flourishing estate of such a life and obedience, exalting them to allegiance, dehorting them from traitorous and felonious stratagems. The work sometimes credited with transforming a dull form into dynamic drama is not a play but actually a series of poems compiled in the 1550s and written collaboratively by several authors. A mirror for magistrates told the life stories of historical figures, including many of the kings that would go on to feature in Shakespeare's plays. But these weren't merely factual recounts, but emotional monologues written in the voices of these famous ghosts. And while their monologues weren't intended as theatre, a mirror for magistrates demonstrated for playwrights a route away from the dogmatic chronicle of the past and towards a more engaging form of lyrical and historical theatre. For dramatic purposes, Marlowe greatly telescopes the history he found in Holinshed, 
focusing on the court conflicts and ignoring the interludes of famine and Scottish wars. Gaveston and Dispenser's reigns as favourite are pushed together and almost overlap, the latter being promoted to the former's titles in the same scene in which the king learns of Gaveston's death. The king's vengeance that was in reality prompted by the exile of Dispenser here follows directly from the killing of Gaveston, neatly snipping out several years of an easy but not very dramatic ceasefire. At the close of the play, the new king, Edward III, immediately has Mortimer beheaded for the murder of his father, and for an added gory finish to the play, presents his severed head to his father's coffin. In reality, Mortimer survived long enough to rule with Isabella for four years, before the young king had him ambushed in his chambers, and hanged without trial, ignoring the frantic protests of his mother. Good son, have pity on noble Mortimer. Edward II is generally considered to be a later play in Marlowe's canon, and was performed by Pembroke's men. Previous plays, such as Tamburlaine, The Jew of Malta and Dr Faustus, had been performed by different companies. All three plays featured the physically impressive actor Edward Alain in leading roles. Alain went on to found Dulwich College, the eventual school of Raymond Chandler. Incidentally, popular tradition has it that the reason behind his charitable work in later life, such as opening this school, was his being petrified by the appearance of a genuine devil during a performance of Dr Faustus. If nothing else, this tale attests to the lasting association between Marlowe and the diabolical. It is typically difficult to determine exactly when and where Edward II was first performed and written. Some speculation draws on textual similarities to other plays, such as George Peel's Edward I, written around 1590 or 91. In Marlowe's opening scene, Gaveston mentions Hero and Leander, which may be the author referencing his own poem on the Greek lovers. In the opening of one of Shakespeare's earliest plays, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, Valentine also mentions the couple and possibly dismisses Marlowe's poem when he sneers at some shallow story of deep love, how young Leander crossed the Hellespont. Edward II bears thematic resemblances to another early Shakespeare play, The Comedy of Errors, and there are lines that recall or anticipate Romeo and Juliet too. King Edward, sharing a last moment with exiled Gaveston, might be speaking from a balcony when he moans, The time is little that thou hast to stay, and therefore give leave to look my fill. Later, Queen Isabella reflects on the horror of civil strife, in terms similar to the prologue of Romeo and Juliet. A heavy case when force to force is knit, and sword and glaive in civil broils make kin and countrymen slaughter themselves. Such details are not much good as archaeology. At best, they broadly support the consensus that Edward II was written and performed sometime in the early 1590s, at the end of Marlowe's career and during the first stages of Shakespeare's. But commonalities of phrasing shed much more light on the collaborative, imitative nature of Elizabethan theatre-making than they do on precise chronology. According to the title page of Edward II's 1594 quarto, it was performed sundry times by Pembroke's men in London and it is likely to have been performed elsewhere too. Theatres were closed on government orders in 1593 after England was hit by an outbreak of plague, in which case Edward II may have been taken on a regional tour, having to adapt to all kinds of spaces, which Peter Greenfield tells us included noble households, churches, churchyards, streets, inns, private houses and town halls. Some critics have speculated that writing for a new company and having lost his physically impressive leading man, Edward Alain, influenced the more humbled character of Marlowe's king. And in some ways, Edward II resembles an effeminate parody of the tyrant King Tamburlaine before him. This in itself may have added another risk to performing the play, further than spreading or catching plague, 
The depiction of a weak king, overruled by bishops and barons, and smitten with an untrustworthy royal favourite, might have suggested some uncomfortable associations with Elizabeth I, whose close relationship with her own royal favourite Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, was subject of much court grumbling. Another royal comparison could be made between the onstage Edward and Henry III of France, whose own murder would be dramatised in Marlowe's The Massacre at Paris. In life, Henry III was renowned for his devotion to his favourites, and in 1589 was denounced by one of his own subjects as Henry of Valois, buggerer, son of a whore, tyrant. And the dangerous connotations didn't stop there. According to Andrea Stevens, Edward II was of course also performed into the Jacobean era, a time when a play about a sodomitical king with problematic male favourites would have resonated in newly provocative ways. In 1614, James I of England met George Villiers, described as the handsomest bodied man in all of England. Villiers became the new royal favourite and was called Steenie by the king, after the angel-faced St Stephen. Whether Marlowe's play was intended to be either an incendiary comment on his own sovereign or a satirisation of a neighbouring one is up for debate, but the potential of such provocative associations was not lost on people. Not many years after Marlowe wrote Edward II, that same Robert Devereux attempted a rebellion against the Queen. On the eve of the rebellion, some of his followers requested a performance of Shakespeare's Richard II, a play with many similarities to Marlowe's, chief among them a frantic king and a scene depicting his deposition. Intended or not, Edward II's challenging subject matter might explain why the play, once sundry times performed, quietly disappeared in the years following. Its short title is Edward II. Would you like to hear its um, pithy full title? Oh, more than anything. The Troublesome Reign and Lamentable Death of Edward II, King of England, with the Tragical Fall of Proud Mortimer. Fantastic. Can you imagine sort of like shouting that out if you were advertising outside the theatres? Why aren't all things still titled in such a fashion? I suppose the modern equivalent would be um, the kind of the the sequel colon subtitle part two. You know that. Well, um, some things like is it Bird, Birdman? Oh yes, yeah. Birdman is Birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance. That's true. Yeah, you, know, you still get stuff like that. I was thinking more of um, Aliens versus Predator Part 2 Requiem. <laughs> Revelations Chronicles Part 3. Blowback. <laughs> <laughs> After the death of its author, Edward II, true to its source material, seems to have spent a few centuries in exile. Andrea Stevens describes the play's stage history after the 1620s as sparse to say the least. It appears to not have had a single performance in the 18th century, Thomas Wharton describing it in 1781 as a forgotten tragedy. Only at the beginning of the 20th century did Edward II begin to be performed widely again. But even then, its troubles were far from over. After being staged by Harley Granville Barker in 1903, George Bernard Shaw thought the play a poor man's Richard II, commenting, There is nothing in it, no possibility of success. During the Second World War, the continued survival of Marlowe's play was gravely endangered when one of the two surviving copies of that 1594 first printing was destroyed by bombing in Germany. But eventually, the critical reputation of Marlowe's play revived. E.M.W. Tilliard writes that, although Edward II shows no prevailing political interest, what animates the play is the personal theme. Edward's personal obsession, his peculiar psychology, the humour, and finally, the great pathos of his situation. Passion is the play's watchword. The distraught king and the vengeful, impulsive Mortimer are both enlivened and destroyed by passion. Where previously Marlowe had inflated shepherds and merchants to the lofty stature of kings, 
Here he does the opposite and shows a king depleted and at the mercy of his emotions. In doing so, Georgia Brown says that Marlowe creates a new form of lyrical narrative that gives voice to women and passionate men to the marginal elements that had been suppressed in Hollinshed. Queen Isabella was an astonishing figure in real life who became known as the She-Wolf of France. Though she is somewhat less impressive in Marlowe's play, she's rare among other works in the genre in being neither a weepy widow nor a comic whore. Joanna Gibbs has praised Marlowe's depiction of Isabella for showing her pragmatic grasp of statecraft and depicting her proving herself impressively capable of consolidating her position in a society hostile to female power. As a character, her political guile and intelligence is only enriched by her compromised position. Though she abandons the king for the treacherous earl and eventually wishes her husband dead, she is not shown as a straightforwardly wicked cuckold, but as a person tormented by cross loyalties, a cruelly used wife and a conflicted mother. Marlowe's register seems in general to treat female roles with an equality unusual to the period. As Don Cameron Allen has said, if one goes by the speeches and never looks at the left-hand margin, one would have difficulty separating the men from the women. Perhaps the most significant upturn in Edward II's critical reputation was its reappraisal as a work dealing explicitly with sexual orientation. By the early 1990s, according to Alan Stewart, it had become the English Renaissance play about male homosexuality. In several ways, Edward II stands alone among the Elizabethan history plays. One difference between Marlowe's work in the genre and Shakespeare's is that Marlowe doesn't use a succession crisis as drama. Edward's son is always destined to take the throne, either on his own terms or under the auspices of his mother and Roger Mortimer. Though it is often the case in Shakespeare's histories, here the royal lineage is not under threat. I have a, I have a question. Yeah. Who is, who is Proud Mortimer? So Proud Mortimer is one of these subjects who isn't very happy about Gaveston and um, the other favourites. He uh, strikes up a relationship with Edward II's wife and the two of them have um, Edward deposed. Mm -hmm. After which, Edward III, who um, loves his mother but also loves his father enough to be pretty outraged by having his father executed, uh, takes his revenge on Mortimer and has him killed as well. So everyone, ev it's a classic, everyone's dead. Classic, yeah. I mean, the sort of main, the chief players are all dead apart from Isabella. Um, she, she, she survives. So, but Edward II is dead. Pierce Gaveston is dead. Um, uh, Mortimer is dead as well. The young Edward has his mother arrested, but stops short of being able to think her so unnatural as to have colluded in his father's death. According to Claude J. Summers, while the word unnatural occurs frequently in the play to describe rebellion and anarchy and dissembling, it is never applied as a sufficient definition of homosexuality. In keeping with the history plays of Shakespeare, Edward II presents a drama of disorder in the royal court. We sense from the beginning that the natural way of life has been disrupted. Behind the nobility's loathing of Gaveston is the fact that, unlike his fellow earls, he is of base-born descent. The historical Gaveston was hardly a commoner, being the son of a respected knight, but his election to earldom was still controversial due to his background being comparatively humble amongst other earls. In Marlowe's play, numerous epithets directed at Gaveston's origins are spat his way. James Voss provides us with a list of them. Slave, peasant, groom, one so basely born, thief, villain, upstart, creeping ant and night-grown mushroom. Edward's favouritism challenges the normal order, which inflames the lords, particularly Mortimer. 
In his rages, his bruised pride and his incomprehension of such a counter-traditional figure is often laid bare, as it is when he heaps scorn on Gaveston's ostentation, in a moment recalling the genuine Gaveston's sartorial flamboyance. I have not seen a dapper jack so brisk. He wears a short Italian hooded cloak, larded with pearl, and in his Tuscan cap, a jewel of more value than the crown. It is the dramatic responsibility of Edward II, and indeed most history plays, to demonstrate the impossibility of reckoning ideal kingliness with human nature. And here Marlowe parallels a similar drama among the lords. Edward's suitability as king is thrown into question by his excessive love for Gaveston, which violates the traditional social hierarchies observed by the nobility. But it is their equally excessive hatred of Gaveston and desire for revenge that causes them to dishonour themselves and disgrace the tradition they mean to uphold. Marlowe leaves no character morally pristine, a decision that may have led William Hazlitt to remark that in the play, little interest is excited in the various turns of fate. The characters are too worthless, have too little energy, and their punishment is, in general, too well-deserved to excite our commiseration. The Earls have a very shields and stirrups sense of honour, and it is made plain that none of them should stoop so low as to personally butcher Gaveston. This does not stop Mortimer from relishing the thought of how easily might some base slave be suborned to greet his lordship with a poniard, and none so much as blame the murderer, but rather praise him. Treason abounds from the very first scene in which Mortimer calls the king brainsick to his face. The idea that Edward is somehow broken is more subtly implied when it is suggested that the removal of Gaveston will mend him. The earls repeatedly chant that it is treachery to turn against the king, while in the same breath speaking openly of deposing him. He is denounced as wicked and lovesick for his minion. Shocking terms, given that to oppose the king was akin to opposing God himself. Aware of this dilemma, the Archbishop of Canterbury swoops on a loophole when he implies God himself has taken up arms against the king. All in all, Edward is quite right to ask, was ever king thus overruled as I? Presented with the earls and in particular Mortimer degrading the station they pretend to take such pride in, it is with delighted satisfaction that we hear Gaveston respond to their jeers at his lowly birth by claiming the higher ground. Base leaden earls that glory in your birth, Go sit at home and eat your tenant's beef, and come not here to scoff at Gaveston, whose mounting thoughts did never creep so low as to bestow a look on such as you. This slight proves too much for proud Mortimer, who responds in the manner customary to the less witty man, by giving Gaveston a quick stab. It's not lethal, and the greater injury is Mortimer's own, as he has attacked the very man who, according to his own code of honour, only a base slave should swing at. So unbridled love on the king's part is met with unbridled loathing in Mortimer. What he sees as unnatural affection is presented, sexual or otherwise, as a painfully earnest love. And Edward is consumed by it, often unable to think of anyone or anything else. In his cruel rebuff to his wife, he says she can go droop and pine. But it is he who pines like a teenager when Gaveston is gone, and is wrapped with boyish joy when he is returned. When asked by Mortimer why he loves his favourite, he responds with blunt simplicity, because he loves me more than all the world. Gaveston opens the play A Lover in Exile, reading a letter from the king. He then plans a celebration, giving a sense of the two men's romantic landscape. Sometime a lovely boy in Dian's shape, with hair that gills the water as it glides, crownets of pearl about his naked arms, and in his sportful hands an olive tree, to hide those parts that men delight to see. 
shall bathe him in a spring, and there hard by, one like Actaeon peering through the grove, shall by the angry goddess be transformed, and running in the likeness of a heart, by yelping hounds pulled down and seem to die. Such things as these best please his majesty. And it is as early as this scene that we see that Gaveston's love might not be quite as earnest as the king's. He indicates desire for political control when he says, I must have wanton poets, pleasant wits, musicians that with the touching of a string may draw the pliant king which way I please. Another hint of his true nature is later dropped by Spencer, who says he expects to be Gaveston's companion, saying he loves me well and once would have preferred me to the king. According to Andrea Stevens, it is difficult to determine how Marlowe's first audiences would have viewed the king's attachment to Gaveston. Given early modern notions of sodomy as a violation of norms of class distinction, with the further implications of treason, and not just codes of sexual behaviour, we might recall Mortimer Jr.'s view that the king's wanton humour is not in itself objectionable. Jonathan Goldberg is one among several critics who maintain homosexuality as only one example of sodomitical behaviour in Edward II. Goldberg suggests sodomy was loosely defined and can be best described as a denial of socially constructed hierarchies. Therefore, from the very first, with Edward inviting Gaveston to share in his kingdom, the country is threatened by a new sodomitical order. Other examples of behaviour in this order include the ruin of Edward's marriage to Isabella and his neglect of the realm, leading to the seizure of Normandy by the French. He has bishops thrown in chains, and he has members of the nobility, including a fellow royal, executed. Sodomitical behaviour displayed in other characters includes that possible falseness of Gaveston and the certain, if justified, falseness of Isabella, not to mention the treachery of Edward's nobles. The passion and sodomitical behaviour of Edward and Mortimer warp them both into behaving against their natures. Peaceful, poetry-loving Edward has become a murderous despot by the end of the play, and proud Mortimer has debased himself with villainy. The old order has been so distorted by each side that the conflicted Kent says at one point, in words reminiscent of Falstaff before battle, Would all were well, and Edward well reclaimed, for England's honour, peace and quietness. According to James Voss, the great difference between Edward and Mortimer lies in Edward's capacity to respond imaginatively and emotionally to primarily symbolic formulations and in his propensity to pursue objectives defined within such experience. While Mortimer thinks and acts within a world of established conventions and responds to political actualities, Edward seems to live in a more subjective world that is given shape by previously unrealised or only partially realised symbolic patterns. It is this very subjective world, the world of a king, that leads him to believe he is less capable than a commoner in bridling his passion and stomaching his pain. The griefs of private men are soon allayed, but not of kings. The forest deer, being struck, runs to a herb that closeth up the wounds. But when the imperial lion's flesh is gored, he rends and tears it with his wrathful paw, and, highly scorning that the lowly earth should drink his blood, mounts up into the air. Consistent with the image of Mortimer dementedly adhering to an established code, he accepts his own death with a pragmatism bordering on relief. Base fortune, now I see, that in thy wheel there is a point, to which when men aspire they tumble headlong down. That point I touched, and seeing there was no place to mount up higher, why shall I grieve at my declining fall? Farewell, fair queen. Weep not for Mortimer, that scorns the world, and as a traveller, goes to discover countries yet unknown. 
His execution is proof that the old order is restored. So perhaps we can picture him a company man who goes whistling to the gallows. Gaveston is eventually executed. And Edward II himself is not only deposed, but in the play receives a gruesome death considered um, fitting for a homosexual and a sodomite. He gets a red-hot poker shoved up his backside. And this is sort of... Suitably medieval. From a murdering perspective, the pragmatic reasoning behind the method of Edward's assassination is to leave no wound. The body of a king, even an unpopular, recently deposed king, would likely be displayed, so a battered face or a back full of arrows was to be avoided if possible. Sliding a poker through a trumpet and killing the king without leaving a mark was hideous, but also crafty. Whether this was the real demise of Edward II is still debated by historians. None of the jailers watching over the king were ever convicted, although one was murdered himself in strange circumstances. And while the king's body was indeed publicly displayed, at a distance, there are some grounds to suggest that Edward wasn't murdered at all. Among them is a letter discovered in French archives addressed to Edward III. It is written by a papal official who tells of receiving confession from a travelling hermit. This confessor said he was in fact Edward II and gave a detailed and compelling account of his escape and journey across Europe. But for our ends, in the play, Edward is murdered in the manner most commonly associated with him. There is no question of ambiguity in Marlowe. Lightbourne, the murderer, whose name is an English equivalent of Lucifer, asks for a red-hot spit, a feather bed and a table. The act of Edward's murder confirms for us that in the eyes of his enemies, his homosexuality was chief among his crimes. This is important to know explicitly. For while to the modern reader, Edward and Gaveston's homosexuality might be as glaring as a double rainbow, in the Renaissance, as Andrea Stephen tells us, male friendship often found expression in passionate and public gestures, like kissing and embracing. Minion, the name often ascribed to Gaveston, which for us has connotations of doting love, was previously a chivalric term for a subject, not simply synonymous with sexual devotion. As Mortimer's father says, the mightiest kings have had their minions. Great Alexander loved Hephaestion, the conquering Hercules for Hylas wept, and for Patroclus, stern Achilles drooped. It is left to the villain Lightborn to hammer home the point. According to Gregory Bredbeck, the mode of Edward's murder can be seen as an attempt to write onto him the sexuality he has been accused of. The depravity of the lords and the implicit nature of Edward's love shows for Bredbeck that here, sodomy doesn't create disorder. Rather, disorder demands sodomy. And it is a measure of just how destabilised the lords have become that their mode of punishment, as David Bevington puts it, reenacts the crime it punishes. For theatrical purposes, the scene has often been given an extra ring of vindictiveness by the stage convention of Gaveston's actor doubling up as Lightbourne. In recent years, productions have placed greater emphasis on Edward's sexuality, most famously in Derek Jarman's version from 1991. Jarman heavily edited the script, which he published as Queer Edward II. His approach was unflinching. Fuck poetry, he said. The best lines in Marlowe sound like pop songs, and the worst, well, we've tried to spare you them. Over the course of the 20th century, the play and performance went from uncomfortably suppressing its homosexual content to championing it as its greatest value. This may be more of a victory for theatre as a whole than for Marlowian interpretation. Edward's story only gets richer if it is not simply that of a homosexual in an unaccommodating society, 
but the story of a king who was radical in all sorts of ways, embarrassingly frank in his affections, exceedingly passionate, and a homosexual as well. There is reason to believe that the fact of Edward II's homosexuality was a useful cloak for Marlowe to throw over the even more incendiary topics of the play. As Stephen Orgel says, For Marlowe to translate the whole range of power politics into sodomy certainly says something about his interests and that of Elizabethan audiences. But it also has to be added that it was probably safer to represent the power structure in that way than it would have been to play it, so to speak, straight. Maybe Edward's sexuality is a way of protecting the play, a way of keeping what it says about power intact. After such a disastrous reign, it is quite amazing that his lineage too remained intact, and that the son of Edward II was not met with wariness, but relief and even joy. Hollinshed records that, In the beginning of this king's reign, the land truly seemed to be blessed of God, for the earth became fruitful, the air temperate, and the sea calm and quiet. And does... Do the events of Edward II run directly into Edward III? Uh, well, no, it doesn't. But we'll have to wait until next time to see how Edward II's son compares to his father when we look at our next history play, Edward III, written, or at least partially written, by William Shakespeare. After that, we will continue down the family line and see just how far off the mark Mortimer was when he said, Never was Plantagenet false of his word. But that's all from us today. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. <laughs>